I'm just noticing how people have filled out the whole room now. It's really nice. It's like in every part of the room. <laughs> we like our space, huh? <laughs> so you, you might be noticing how, what a difference 48 hours of meditation makes. You know, when you think now that you know, you came really about 48 hours ago that we began the retreat. And many shifts and changes and turns. And it seems that some people had a very difficult day yesterday. And many the people reported that. And also people reporting that today was getting a little easier, more calm. Things were quieting down a little bit more. And it's interesting how the meditation and the silence really does impact us in ways that maybe we don't expect. And we can reflect back on, you know, even right now, after just two days, of how your mind was when you arrived here <laughs> 48 hours ago. I'm usually one of the first insights that people have, the first insight that I had, was how out of control my mind was. You know, and I was surprised when my teacher said, yeah, that's a good insight. It was like, (laughs) that's insight? (laughs) You know, to actually witness that uncontrollability You know, my lack of capacity to have any ability to uh, uh, monitor my mental activity. And so it is an insight. You know, it's something that we really want to know. We don't want to just be caught by it, um, identified with it, believing the mind The Buddha calls this practice a mind training. We're actually training our mind. We're we're trying to gain some mastery over our mind. And the Buddha said in uh, one of his discourses, which really um, impacted me, when the Buddha said, I am a master of my mind. I think the thoughts I want to think And I don't think the thoughts I don't want to think. I am a master of my mind. And when I read that, it really kind of held up this mirror of possibility. As his mind is not different than my mind in its nature, in its fundamental nature. The difference is that the Buddha was able to master his mind. And so it wasn't out of control. And so we start to have a sense, even in a very short time, of what it means to start to get some control so that we're not just carried away by these tides. The Buddha calls it the tides of conceiving. The tides of conceiving. How we're projecting this conception of what the world is about 
in our own mind, based on our own conditioning, our own impressions, our own influences. And we project that. It's like we project that view onto this green of this world and say, that's how it is. This is who I am, and this is how I am, and that's how you are, and that's how the world is, and it becomes a very kind of fixed reality in our mind. And if we get fixed in that, if we get locked in that, we suffer. That is what suffering is, because we're out of alignment with the way things are. We're out of alignment with the current of the truth, with reality. And, and yet we often don't see that. We don't, because we're, it's like you can't see the forest for the trees. We're so up against our mind that we think we are our mind. I think I am my thoughts. I think I am my feelings, my emotions. I think I am my body. And I think you are your mind and your, your mind and your emotions and your body. <laughs> and you shouldn't be like that. <laughs> and I shouldn't be like this. And we get into a whole kind of rigidity. And we, we can feel a sense of being very small in that view. Things be very small and narrow in that view. And so we start to have, through our awareness, our mindfulness, we're, we turn that. We turn that mindfulness towards our own mind. And we take a look. What is that current? What is that stream that's running through in the conceptual, the conception, the the conceptual mind? The way that we are configuring, conceptualizing, constellating, picturing, imagining reality. And we come here and we're asked to... Stop, turn into the awareness, turn into the mindfulness, and take a look. Just see it for what it is. See it for what it is. And maybe we can start to see a thought as a thought, a pattern of thought as a pattern of thought, an emotion as an emotion, a sensation in the body as a sensation a sight as a sight, a sound as a sound, a taste as a taste, without adding a whole lot more to it. The difficulty is that we keep adding layers of our own conception on top of it. That's what's called our story. We have our story, the story of me. And uh, it is about me. (laughs) It's always about me. We love to be in the center of the limelight. You know, that's where our ego self wants to be. You know, then we feel like we're somebody. You know, I'm somebody. And we can build up our whole sense of our self around that story that we carry without sometimes really questioning it, without really looking too deeply into it. So that's what we're doing. We're kind of we're cultivating that quality of pure awareness itself. Just that bare awareness, like a, a reflective mirror that can see reality in its simple nature. It's as it arises, moment to moment to moment. 
and we see how much it changes. One of the things we start to perceive when we look clearly in this way, we see that it's a changing nature, a changing landscape. It's not staying fixed in any kind of any kind of way. Our body, our mind, our emotions, the day, we have morning and afternoon and night and we go through all these different rhythms in our in our in our uh, our body rhythms, tired, awake, sometimes agitated, sometimes really calm and present. And then we see all this change, and we have to say, well, then who am I? Which one of those experiences am I? Which one can I pick up and define myself around? and say, that's me, that's who I am. And it's one of the things that we start to see when we pay attention in this way, that when we really start to look, it's always changing. I'm always changing. My experiences are always changing. But it's so easy, then a certain story comes along, and we kind of want to attach onto it, and then we can get very involved in that story, and, and, and not really have so much presence or awareness just to see that that's arising. It's another thing that's arising. And it's arising for a reason. Everything arises for a reason. But it also passes away. Things arise and they pass away. And so part of our, part of our practice is, yes, we, we welcome what's arising, but we also let it go. <laughs> We let it go. It has its own nature. It has its own time. Things present themselves, they make their impact, and then they pass away. And you've probably been able to see that many times already since you've been here, if you reflect on it. How many times you've changed. (laughs) You've changed as a person. Maybe in 24 and and 48 hours, your body hasn't changed that much. Maybe it has. I mean, usually we need a few more years to actually see the aging process, you know, (laughs) the fact that we're actually in a decline, you know, from the minute that we're born, we're we're going downhill towards death. And, And so, you know, we can actually witness all those physical changes that we go through as well. But in 48 hours, we're not going to see so much of that. But we do see all this change, all this change in our mind. What are we going to believe? What are we going to say is true? What's real? We start to question all of that. So we're trying to bring a certain kind of mastery to our mind. What does that mean? What does it really mean to master our mind? Maybe it has something to do with this kind of way of viewing our experience. So we're not so caught by it. We're not so identified. We're not pushing it away. We're not trying to make it stop. We're not trying to not have experience. We're not trying to not have our thoughts and our 
pictures and our images and our feelings. We're not trying to change anything. And that's what's interesting, you know, because we think we're, we need to fix things or change ourselves or make ourselves better or change our relationships or, you know, but we actually don't really need to do much at all except stay connected to ourselves, stay present with ourselves, stay here. Have some sense of what it means to really be here for what's happening, and then everything happens on its own. Everything happens on its own. And it's sometimes hard to trust that, hard to really believe that I don't have to put so much effort in to my practice or myself or my life or whatever it is. Maybe I can relax. Maybe I can rest a little bit more. Maybe I can be more kind. Maybe I can be a little bit more gentle with myself start to get a sense of what it would really mean to relax. It's not so easy because a lot of us have a very strong mechanism that is in gear. We're kind of in gear. (laughs) And we feel ourselves driving down the road, you know? And sometimes it's hard to shift gears. We don't really know how. Even if we can recognize that not knowing how, we've already moved into awareness and kindness, saying, I don't know how to do that. It's a huge shift there in that kind of truthfulness and that kind of honesty. We've already landed closer to our truth in that moment. So this movement closer to what is, closer to our experience as it is, how it is, without so much manipulation and effort and moving out of all kinds of expectations and ideas and pictures, all this that we carry with us. In some ways, we're wanting to lighten our load want to lighten our load. And we can lighten our load as we start to see the load we're carrying. In some ways, we have to really see it before we can put it down. Sometimes we're not even so aware that we're carrying a load. Everything just seems so ordinary. It's just, isn't this how it is? Isn't this how life is? Isn't this just the way things are? But actually know. If you're suffering or you feel that burden, or that, that heavy, unsatisfactory quality in your life, something's misaligned, something's not understood, there's something to be free of. The Buddha pointed to the ending of dukkha, this this word dukkha, which means this uh, suffering or unsatisfactoriness, the ending of that, the complete ending of that, that it's really possible to live a life of peace and contentment 
and happiness and ease. It really is. It really is possible. That's our nature. Our nature is free. Our nature itself is, 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 is continually self-liberating. There's nothing rigid. There's nothing solid. There's nothing stuck. It's moving, shifting, changing, liberating. So we're trying to get a sense of that nature, of that aliveness, that vitality, energy that we are. But we have to look and see what's there. To look and see what's there. There's this uh, lovely poem from Stephen Levine. Stephen Levine was one of my very, very first Vipassana teachers, a man who's made a tremendous uh, impact in his teachings, particularly around uh, death and dying, working with, um, in, the, in, that, in that field. Very profound, uh, poetic man. And this is one of his poems called Meditation Blues. Sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind. Cold self-interest, insistent fear and judgment, whispered insults, vengeful fantasies, triumph and despair. A conditioned unfolding so impersonal we take it personally. Sometimes aghast at the casual cruelty of even minor fears and celebrations. Sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind. And sometimes it stays broken long enough to touch even this pain with love. Sometimes the mercy washes even Mrs. Macbeth's hands, turns tragedy to grace, and makes it all worthwhile. Sometimes it breaks my mind to watch my heart. Sometimes it breaks my mind to watch my heart. And this is, I love that because in a way this is the shift that we're attempting to make when we come into more connection with our heart, not just our mind. Not just this continual kind of Velcro relationship to our thoughts, <laughs> you know. It's like we, we don't, we can't get unstuck sometimes. And so there's not much space, right? There's, there's, there's no space. I mean, Velcro is Ruth Dennison, one of our elders, came up with that, that metaphor because it's like it's so much the way the mind is because it's sticky and it's stuck and it's very hard to pull it apart. <laughs> and so when we're that stuck, identified in that way, it's, it's difficult to locate our heart. And the heart, when we speak of the heart, we're talking about the quality of love the quality of kindness, the qualities of gentleness, of sensitivity, of respect, where we start to actually touch into our innate goodness. But we know that we're good. 
that, all, that fundamentally I'm a good person. We start to touch into our nature, our innate nature, which is good. The rest is all conditioned projection, all the overlay, all of the overlay from the past, all that we're carrying with us from the past into the present. If what we're experiencing isn't an open-hearted kindness to ourselves and to others, then we're caught in our past projections, our past identification. And when we start to have more awareness and wisdom of that, then we can recognize in the moment, I'm caught. I'm caught here. I'm caught here. And there's something that I can do. There's some way I can be with myself to to hold myself, to embrace myself with more care. With more care. I'm always amazed as I continue along on this path over all these years that this practice seems to come down to simple kindness to the simple act of care. It's, you know, when I first began, I had so many highfalutin ideas of where this path was leading. And as I come, as this path and this practice points me more into my humanity and my humanness, not some transcendent (laughs) kind of deity, or elusive, you know, illusory deity, you know, all kinds of, we can have all kinds of imaginations about who we become or what we become on this path. But this tradition points us right into our humanity, into being human with a human heart, (laughs) with a human heart that is touched and that is moved and that is hurt and that is sensitive and that feels and that is engaged with all of life, the suffering and the joys, say the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 suffer- and the 10,000 sorrows. That's what we open to as a human. And as we open to that, and we, we more and more feel our heart, include our heart, which is the, the simple act of care and kindness, that's what ushers us in to the world. That's what ushers, ushers our, uh, ourselves in to more true relationship with ourselves and people and, and the world as it is. It all comes down to this love and kindness and care and respect. And so it's so fundamental that in, the, in our practice that this is leading it's what's, it's what's leading. It's what we're bringing again and again, moment to moment, when we recognize that that's not there. Is there some way to locate it? Is there some way to access it? And maybe not in that moment. And so then maybe I think all we can do is wait it out. It seems like we just wait it out. And maybe you've seen that then there's a, no, there's a crack and that some 
Kindness floods back in again. The kindness can flood back in again. We're not far away. We're never far away. It's just one teacher said to me, a half breath. It's a half breath away. That true nature that is the that manifests as love and care and kindness. It seems that this pattern, one of the patterns that is so difficult for us, particularly um, Westerners, uh, Westerners meaning North Americans and Europeans and uh, people from these countries, not so much in Asia, it seems, but this, this very difficult pattern of negative judgment the way we so we've somehow cultivated through our conditioning and through our parenting some way that we have learned that we are not very valuable, we're not very worthy, uh, that in some way we may be wrong or we're bad or, you know, I even for a long time felt I was evil, you know, that... that uh, belief was so deep in my conditioning from my parenting. I was so wrong and just the, the most evil being on the earth, I was sure I was the meanest person who ever existed because I was so filled with hate towards my mom, you know, as an adolescent. And that's, you know, just not okay, right? You're not supposed to hate your mother. But if we're honest, as some of us, if we're really true, sometimes that's what we feel, you know, as as children and as adolescents because we didn't necessarily get what we needed to develop in a healthy way. And we know that and we can feel that anger and the rage and the hate towards our mother or father or caretaker, whoever that is. And yet because that's so unacceptable, then that gets turned in and then there's a sense of being so bad, you know, just such a bad person. I hate my mother, you know, and all gets so internalized. And yet there's a way that there's not so much understanding as we develop about what to do with that or how to hold that or how to, how to work with it or heal it. And so we can very much internalize this negative, critical, judging voice. And it's almost like it becomes a character. It's like a character that lives in us. That walk, you know, it's like it walks around with us and, you know, like a being, like another being that lives in us. This negative, critical judge, I'm not, when I talk about the judge, I'm not talking about a judge that is the discerning judge that just says, this is different from that, where we're judging, I like that better than I like this. That's a different kind of judgment. I'm talking about this aggression in the mind, the aggressive pattern, that critical uh, pattern that is there's a kind of self-loathing or even a self-hatred in it sometimes. We turn it to ourselves. We turn it back on ourselves. And it's that being or that character which it seems to manifest as that. There really isn't one, but it seems like that. 
And this one takes control and dictates reality through the lenses of that structure, of that pattern that got put in place through the development. Because, there, again, there wasn't really so much clarity or education, understanding of what to, how, how to be with that. And so it sort of implants itself. And then what we find is that there's that voice that can come in in a very critical, negative way and undermines our experience. Can, depending on how strong it is, it can undermine almost everything we do. Sometimes some people have that, that kind of insistent pattern working through their mind. And then what happens, and this is a kind of interesting thing, that what happens then, that, that one cannot exist alone because that one has to have another one to tyrannize. That one has to have another being who's going to be really affected by that. And this one is the victim, right? This is the one who you can feel young, you can feel uh, uh, um, like a child, you can feel like um, everything you're doing is wrong, you're bad, you can't do anything right, and you feel completely victimized by this cruel authority. And this cruel authority can even get projected out into another person. That, he's doing it to me, or she's doing it to me. Because we may not recognize how it's working within our own mind. And then we just feel terrible a lot of the time. We feel not unvalued, we feel not very worth worthy, we feel unloved, uncared for. But it's because of this one, because of this, this, this strength of this pattern who's constantly telling us how unworthy we are and how bad we are and how you do everything wrong and you're so stupid and you can't do anything right and what are you doing this for anyhow? Who do you think you are that you can do anything right and that you can have any success in your life? And you're not, why, would, why would you ever think you're not just a complete failure? And then we have this going on. And what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? We're just like caught between these two sides of ourselves. These two sides of ourselves. And we can feel the split we actually can feel fragmented or split in ourselves. We know that's not all of who we are. We know we're not just a child. We know we're not just a victim. But we also, we can sometimes even identify with the other. We, we, we can just think we're, we're just mean and cruel, and we, we know we're not that either. I'm not just this cruel, mean person. <laughs> well, then, then who am I? You know, if I'm not that and I'm not this... Well, sometimes I actually feel really loving and I, I feel really caring and, and I feel calm and I feel at peace. Well, am I that? Well, who, who am I in there? And we can, we can be very quite confused because there's these different structures, these different configurations that are playing out. So, so it's really helpful to begin to understand that these are patterns, these are impressions that got implanted over time. It's the way that we developed, our character developed 
due to certain conditions in our life, depending on the kind of parenting you had, depending on the kind of family structure you had, the depending on the different kind of influences you had in your life, if you grew up with somebody in your life that was very loving, really saw you, really cared for you, really held you, that's going to be a strong impression. That reflection is going to go deep and you go, yeah, I know who I am. I'm this really lovely person because you know, my grandma said I am. You know, and That's what happens. That's how we learn. All these things go in very, very deep and give shape, give form to what we call our character or our personality. And it takes, it takes on these different aspects, these different formations. So we want to actually be able to see this as, these as patterns. We can see the movement in our mind. We can see how these things play out. We can begin to identify, oh yeah, I really feel small and I feel collapsed and I feel like a child. Okay, bringing presence to that, awareness to that, breathing, uh, settling, not just not identifying with it as well as we can. Let it go. Let it move through. It's not who you are. It's not who you are. We feel critical. We feel mean. We feel judgmental. We're undermining ourselves. We see that. Oh, yeah, there's that judge. There's that pattern. Let it move through. Don't pick it up. Don't let it land. If we can, this is the practice. Let it move through. Each time we're doing that, we're bringing a certain quality of awareness and kindness to our experience. It's a very compassionate movement of our heart, of our being, when we approach our experience in that way. Otherwise, we get real, this becomes like our worldview. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is what the world is like. We're, we're like looking at the world through these distorted lenses. It's as if we have these colored glasses on our face and we're looking out at the world through those colors. And they're not giving us a very clear reflection of the way things are. And that's what happens with our conditioning. And conditioning means all of those conditions that have impressed upon us as we were developing in our life. All of that is working in our neo-circuits, you know, firing in our brain. <laughs> and and uh, brain science now is actually starting to look into this really well and understanding how these grooves get deep into our brain and we just repeat these pa- patterns again and again and again. We're trying to, we're trying to make new grooves, <laughs> get into a new groove <laughs> as we bring about this transformation. Otherwise, you know, we, we, looking through these glasses, we actually accumulate evidence for our belief. We see it everywhere. 
we start to even be suspicious that people are judging us, people see us in a certain way, we don't really trust people's good intentions, if somebody says something nice to us, they're, oh, you're just saying that. <laughs> you don't really mean it. You know? It's like it's hard. It's hard to actually receive people's love and receive people's kindness and goodness because we're, we're, we're just kind of defensive or on guard and we're not really sure what people's motives and intense, intentions are. It can be very ungrounded, very unsettling. But really, it's not even so much about what happens externally. Because mostly we are suspicious of our own mind. It's like we can't even really trust our own mind. Right? We're, we're, we, in, in a way, it's like we can't trust our own goodness. We become suspicious of that. We become doubtful of that. And there's a way we become, we feel alienated from ourself because we don't know what to trust. We don't know where to land. We don't know where to rest. And in a way, we may even feel unsafe in our own skin. It's not safe there. It's not safe here. It's not safe anywhere. It's a very painful situation. It's very painful. This call it the human predicament. It's not just because we're in this together. We're all in this together. And this whole constellation creates a certain kind of mental activity. Where then we kind of go back into the mind to try to figure it all out, to try to find a way out. And it creates more mental activity and more fear and more agitation. We can find ourselves pretending and hiding and complaining, comparing. We can find ourselves caught in uh, uh, self-pity. I I spent years in self-pity. Why is this happening to me? Everybody else seems to have it so much better than me. You know, but this is before I started meditating. And then when I came to meditation and I sat, sat in groups, uh, uh, group interviews, and I heard other people's experience, it was like, oh my gosh. It's like everybody's talking about the same thing. It was absolutely enlightening. There was a way that I felt liberated by hearing that other people were suffering as much as I was. It's a kind of funny liberation, you know, to actually feel better. (laughs) When you recognize that other people are afflicted in the same way. But there is something that starts to happen for us. And I think I'm always very aware that it's one of the wonderful things about group interviews is that you hear that you're not alone. Because what's happening for you is actually not so personal. (laughs) It all feels so personal. It's all about me, you know, and it's all about woe is me. But the reality is we all have the same kind of mind. The teachings of the Buddha 
arose 2,500 years ago. And if you read the discourses, people are afflicted in exactly the same way that we are afflicted today. That's how Buddhism arose, because the Buddha saw into his own, his own mind. He saw that he had the afflictions in his own mind and then was able to find a way to free himself of that and then offer those teachings and these practices and the path so that we can free ourselves from those same afflictions. <laughs> it's not so personal. It's a funny thing that starts to dawn on us. It's like, oh yeah, it's just the mind. It's just the mind, just as it, it's just the body. It's not my body, and it's not like me that's so afflicted in my body. It's the nature of the body. The nature of the body is dukkha. The body is born, it ages, it gets sick, and it dies. <laughs> That is the nature of this body. It's dukkha. There's no way out of that. It's what's called dukkha dukkha. <laughs> it actually is. <laughs> in, the po- in the Pali text, the translations, dukkha dukkha means suffering, suffering. <laughs> when we're talking about the suffering of the body because there's no way out. It is the nature of things to be born, to come into existence, to have a certain life, then to decay and to die away. It's the nature of all things. And this body is just that, physical, elemental nature. But we take it all so personally. But it's such a, you know, a wonderful thing that we can come together and just sort of like say, oh no, we're kind of in this together. We're all in this together. And when we see that, certainly what's happened, happened for me is it awakens my heart of compassion. It makes me feel more like I belong to the human race also, but that I then understand and feel empathy for what other people are going through because it's just like me. It's what I go through. It's what we all go through, and we share it together. And that way, it may be possible not to feel so alone, to not feel so isolated in our suffering, in our pain, that we're not so special. Sometimes we want to be special around our suffering. (laughs) Somehow we think we're different. And in that feeling different, and then we can kind of, another way of elevating ourselves, the ego, the ego feels elevated again. I'm somebody because I really suffer like nobody else. (laughs) Really want to proclaim how much we suffer. Nobody suffers the way I do. You know? Again, it's just a way, another way, elevating ourselves. There are lots and lots and lots and hundreds, billions of people on this planet. We are all sharing this together. We're in this together. 
So love. St. John of the Cross said, And I saw the river over which every soul must pass to reach the kingdom of heaven, and the name of that river was suffering. And I saw the boat which carries souls across the river, and the name of that boat was love. I saw the boat which carries souls across the river, the river of suffering, and the name of that boat was love. Nisargadatta, another saint in India, died some years ago, said, the mind creates the abyss, love crosses it. I love that one. Because we can feel like there's a great divide, a great abyss. We feel that split. We feel that fragmentation. We feel we're all over the place. A great abyss or emptiness, great gap. The mind creates that. The mind creates that. And love crosses it. Love dissolves it. So in this path, we have this practice of metta, of loving-kindness. It's why that practice is so important for us, because it's this practice which inclines the mind, it turns the mind in the right direction. It points us in the right direction, this direction of our innate goodness, this direction of what's really true and real, about our being, our nature, of who we really are and our essence. This turning in Ryokan, this very famous Japanese poet said, if you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? (laughs) If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how are you ever going to arrive? And that's what we're doing when we follow the mind, when we listen to these thoughts, when we get caught and identified in these conditioned patterns. We're pointing our cart north, but we want to go south. South, we know where south, we know what is, you know what, we know what south is. Fully landing in our heart, in our being, in our, in our, in our awake consciousness. So the loving kindness, it it, it turns us, it inclines us, it also awakens us in that goodness, in that care, in that love. But again, it takes a certain kind of willingness, it takes a, a certain kind of faith to say, okay, I'm going to turn the mind. And when we practice loving kindness with the traditional fa- phrases that, that, you, that you were practicing today, you, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be safe, may I be at ease. When we practice in that way, even though it may not feel true, and we may really believe it's never possible, and we may, not, we may believe it's, we're not even worthy, and we can just feel so awkward and mechanical in the practice. And I just hated metta for years and years. It was so hard for me to turn, to make that turn. But yet having the faith in it and doing it, the doing it itself is what 
inclines the mind. It, it starts to turn the mind, even though it can seem very difficult at first to make that turn. But using those traditional phrases, they, they have such power over time if we keep applying them. It's like almost like a healing salve on our heart, on our mind. And yet it doesn't have to be just the phrases. Loving-kindness is, is also an attitude. It's an attitude of care. It's an attitude of loving-kindness. So we can even just feel that feeling of, of, of kindness and then just bring that forth. Just that little shift, just a little shift. Instead of following the negativity and, and the, the criticalness and the, the, um, the doubt and the thoughts that are leading us to more suffering or pain, we just turn it towards the kindness, turn towards that care. Very gentle, very gentle. If we find ourselves really caught in the negativity and then we're feeling angry that we're caught in the negativity and then we're resisting that we're caught in the negativity and we're judging ourselves because we're resisting because we're caught in the negativity. And you know it can really go far far out, right? Just layers and layers upon layers of that judgment and it can feel very thick, very compacted. And so we see if we can just find that outermost layer, that outermost layer there. It's like an, I always, it always seems like a, a like an, the metaphor of an onion. When you just, you peel, you can peel each layer off the onion and each one goes closer and closer to the center. And, 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 and have a look next time you're cutting an onion. Because what you'll see is in the center, it's empty. There's a place where the layers, because they're, they're circular, and there's a point at which it, there's no more layers, and there's just a little empty space in the middle of an onion. There's nothing more. It's all done. No more layers. <laughs> empty. <laughs> Space, <laughs> openness. <laughs> and so it's the same way, really. We start at the outermost layer. Just let go of one judgment, the judgment of the judgment of the judgment. Don't even worry about getting to the, to the end. You can only start where you are, starting at the outermost place. And that already gives you some sense of relief. Just having let go of that. Paying respect. Paying respect to the depth of our conditioning. The depth of our history. Of what happened to us. How we grew up. What those conditions were like for us. Having tremendous care for ourselves that that happened. And that in some ways it isn't our fault. We are blameless. It's not, we haven't done anything wrong. I'm not wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. Just the conditioning. You see, it's the conditioning. It's the impressions. 
And I do not have to be defined by those impressions. I don't have to be defined by that patterning. And the more that I can see that, I can begin to disentangle myself from that. It's like the onion. Start taking away the layers until I get to the true center (laughs) and then see what's there. And the funny thing is it's not even a linear process. The Buddha Dharma is not linear. It means that this isn't necessarily something that happens in time. It doesn't mean that this is going to take you millions of years (laughs) before you're going to get to this empty center. (laughs) It's not necessarily going to take even a lifetime because this can happen in an instant. This defies all of time because all this requires is one moment where there's clear seeing. One moment when those impressions and those patterns just drop away for an instant and then it's like, wow. Then the eye, your eyes are open, your body is open, your heart is open, and you're right here in that pristine, beautiful clarity and light and radiance and love. You're right here. And that is the taste. That is, some say, the perfume of liberation. That is the, the smell, that's the taste, that's the, any, any metaphor that you want to use. It is it. It is it. Oftentimes we miss it because we say, it can't be it. <laughs> And sometimes we know that it's it, and then we want to hold on to it. Oh, I love this. I don't want it to ever go away. But it's still it. And then the old patterns can come back, flood back. And that's the way it is. That's how it is for a while. But it doesn't deny in any way the magnificence of what's available to us at any given moment. And so when that opens to us, when that's available to us, we celebrate. (laughs) Celebrate. Feel the joy. Feel the wonder. Feel the love. Feel the radiance. Because the more that we stay really present for that, the deeper it can go, the more of an impression it will make. Because this is all impression. It's all impression. So we want to open to that as much as we can. Arms wide open, head wide open, but not grasping, just open, and it does what it needs to do. Nothing else has to happen. So I'll end with this um, poem.
poem by Galway Cannell, which helps us remember who we are as we awaken to our heart and mind. It's one of the teachers, the, the Dharma teachers here, it's one of our favorite poems that we like to read on retreat. It's St. Francis and the Sow. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow, and the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths sucking and blowing beneath them the long perfect loveliness of Sal. Let's sit quietly for a moment. The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Thank you. So there's time now for half an hour of walking and take some time in the stillness of these night hours listening to the crickets, just being with yourself in a kind way. <laughs> 